Welcome to Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedoms with George Christensen. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore conservative one well g'day and welcome to another episode of conservative one the podcast defending traditions and freedom i'm george christensen your host and australian member of parliament and i'm joined by another member of parliament uh, a senator in fact the former resources minister senator for queensland and my good friend Matt Canavan. Matt's had a long and distinguished career in politics, only having been uh, elected to the Senate relatively short time later, he was elevated to cabinet because this guy is one of the brightest people in the room in Canberra, let me tell you. Matt, it's great that you can join us. For those people that uh, are switching in for the first time who have not a concern about politics. I'm not sure why they'd be listening to my podcast, but give us a quick bio on your background. Well, well, thank you very much, George, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here uh, on, on your pod- podcast. Great initiative from yourself. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if I should say much more after the intro because I might open my mouth and uh, change <laughs> people's opinions of your conclusion, but uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, my story, I suppose, that led to politics uh, has been because I've always been interested in policy and how that affects people's lives. Uh, I studied economics at university and I suppose at that time I had the the, the view that you know, I wanted to, to help, help save the world, if you like, as you do when you're an 18-year-old. Uh, I was heavily involved in uh, in in in, uh, in 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 Edmund Rice camps and Catholic Church. So I was a as a bit into the social justice type movements. Uh, and don't hold that against me. I was a little it's bit a of shame. a commie, perhaps. It's a shame. And uh, so I always had that 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 outlook uh, of wanting to do something. I didn't straight get off go into politics. I I, I did eventually become more conservative in my views. I suppose at first that was under the influence of people when I was learning economics and I became a bit more libertarian and then I had children and I think when you become a father, suddenly libertarianism doesn't look like the greatest philosophy going around, Uh, so I became more conservative. Uh, I didn't think I'd end up on the front line of politics. I suppose I'll try and make a long story short, but I I was living in Canberra and there's not a lot of pathways uh, for a conservative politician in, in our nation's capital. So I didn't really give that much credence. But but planets aligned and uh, a retiring senator, the great Ron Boswell, encouraged me to think about it. Uh, and eventually I moved back to Queensland and gave it a shot and was lucky enough to be to be elected a senator for this great state of Queensland and throwing myself into that role. And it's been a wonderful time fighting with you quite often against green radicals, <laughs> activists, neo-Marxists. We've had a few wins. Uh, that's been good. And there's a lot, a lot of more battles still to fight, uh, that's for sure. So uh, yeah. we'll talk a bit about it today, I'm sure. Indeed. Now, for a, a stint there, you you mentioned you did an economics degree. For a stint there, you were uh, an economist with the Productivity Commission. So that's your forte. You're a, you're a numbers man and a thinker about economic issues. Would I be right in saying that, Matt? Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, uh, I, I did... 
I, I didn't study economics, I suppose, out of my my uh, passion. Uh, I felt I needed to potentially do something that might earn me an income. So I, I was doing the arts degree, philosophy and history, and then thought, oh, I'd better do something. I might get a job and 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 got more and more into economics. And as I said, that dovetailed my interest in pol- pol- policy. And I did work at the Productivity Commission in the early 2000s. Uh, for those who don't know, the Productivity Commission is an economic advisory body, really, for the government. Uh, uh, particularly on matters that are that are, that are microeconomic in, in nature, so not dealing with monetary policy or fiscal policy, uh, more around issues like tax and industry support, etc. Mm. The Productivity Commission has generally been a, a body that's been an advocate for uh, free markets and and uh, reducing regulation and barriers to trade. They're all things in principle, I support, but I do think for a couple of reasons we, we've we've all, well we've always got to got to I think uh, counter our ideological. Uh, blinkers with a view of the real world as it is and right now i think the world is moving away from globalization that's going to have ramifications for our country and we need to respond to that Uh, and it's always the case we should be wary about uh, uh, trade patterns that are too distorted by by other government strategies and there's there's risks in that 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 aren't necessarily factors into economic theory that, that provides a very good segue because I guess the talk of the town at the moment, uh, particularly in Canberra, is China. And um, I've long believed that uh, there is a fundamental problem with the world trade situation, in particular Australia's place within it, because we rely so heavily on China for trade. And yet we've got China um, in this sort of so-called global free market economy that is a command and control economy. They print their own money. They fix the value to that money. Uh, that's all done at the dictate of the Communist Party of China or a one-party state. You know, if you disagree with any of those economic principles, um, there's a wall, there's a gun, and you're going to meet uh, the bullet out of the gun. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a brutal regime where they rule with an iron fist, including on economic matters. Uh, I have always wondered how on earth we let ourselves uh, effectively compete against uh, a bear moth like that, and it really is. Have you done much thinking about or, or looking into the economics behind China? Well, yes, and, and I, I, I suppose I want to say up front that I, I want to approach this uh, very much with a filter about what's in, in our national interest and in the Australian national interest. And there are some differences and quirks between how China's growth uh, and, and it's the operation of its economy has a different impact on Australia as compared to, say, it does on the, on the United States. Uh, uh, on any measure, Australia has been a massive net beneficiary of China's economic rise and growth, principally because they've had a significant demand for raw materials that we specialise in, like iron ore, coal, and, and now increasingly gas. Uh, that, that, has, that has remarkably transformed our economy. I think we've been fortunate enough to avoid some of the uh, social decay or economic decay you've seen in, in, in the, say, the Rust Belt seats of the states of the US, mm-hmm. uh, because we've had a mining industry that's provided employment to especially young men uh, who are, uh, are sometimes at risk of otherwise being left behind. So we haven't faced the same cost, perhaps, as, say, the debate in the US gets, gets um, coloured by. But there's no doubt that the, the, the Chinese government has developed and pursued a policy of attracting uh, large parts of the manufacturing supply chain of the world to their shores. 
both through easy credit, a, a low exchange rate, uh, and direct subsidies from time to time. Not so much tariff barriers per se, they've joined the World Trade Organization, but a variety of non-tariff barriers have distorted production in manufacturing supply chains to China. Now, before, I don't want to single to, out to China detriment? here because, to, well, well, as I said, not so much. I will come back to that. I, I don't think Australia, and on net terms, obviously it's had an impact on some industries, but net terms it's been pretty positive for us overall. And, uh, and let's be just very careful here too. At one level, what China is doing and pursuing is not significantly different to what Japan uh, did, uh, uh, what, what Korea and a lot of the Asian tiger economies did post-war, what Germany did in the late 19th century, and what the United States did for a large part of its history as well. There's always been strategies of countries to attract manufacturing uh, and value-adding uh, to their own countries. Um, so we've got to be balanced here. That's not, that's not terrible, but we've got to be wary of the distortions it sometimes creates. Um, and then, as you pointed out, though, the other issue here and problem is this is not policies being pursued by a, a democratic, uh, free and, uh, country. It, it is a, an authoritarian regime, um, and we've got to be very, very clear-headed about the risks of becoming too integrated with such a regime, too reliant on it, and certainly very resistant to any idea that the benefits we receive from the, the trade uh, in an economic sense would somehow uh, buy buy off our sovereignty or our independence as a nation. That's something we'd be very wary of, and that's been highlighted pretty starkly in our country in the last few weeks. But is that borne out in reality? I mean, I agree with you. Trade with them, uh, sell your stuff to them, buy some of their stuff if you must, but don't let them control you. I fear, though, I really do fear that um, there is a view in China that we should be subservient uh, we see that we see that uh, played out only very recently. You know when there was some very justified criticism, uh, very justified criticism, uh, and and calls for uh, investigations into the origin of the Wuhan coronavirus that's currently causing this worldwide pandemic. Uh, the instant response from the ambassador was, "Well, we could." Stop buying your stuff if you're going to pursue that. Uh, that's bully boy tactics. That that really isn't the, the stuff of, of friends. That's the stuff of, uh, of of enemies. Actually, saying that sort of stuff. We saw the bizarre scenes of uh, that same ambassador, I believe it was, uh, who was gate crashing a minister's press conference. Um, this is really weird stuff, but it's sort of a sign of. Uh, of, I guess, them lording it over us and saying, we have the whip hand here. I made some remarks, Matt, which were on the edge, unlike me. Uh, you know, I made some <laughs> remarks about, uh, you know, if China is uh, liable, um, if they have done the wrong thing and breached international health protocols in relation to this uh, Wuhan coronavirus, and I believe that they have. I mean, we had a situation where some 5 million people left uh, Wuhan to go to the four corners of the planet, spreading this disease with them. And, uh, uh, you know, at the same time, those those people were blocked from going anywhere else in China. So that shows to me they knew there was a problem, but they, they stopped the problem within their country, but then let it go throughout the rest of the world. Now, I don't know what rationale you could have for letting that virus go throughout the rest of the world like that, but, you know, 
that seems to be the facts before us. So there's a lot of questions around that. And uh, if they have breached international health protocols, are they liable? Uh, so I went down this road a fair bit and said, well, if they are, um, then perhaps we send them an IOU for the economic damage that's befallen our country. And there's, it's been mammoth, mammoth economic damage. Of course, uh, Xi Jinping would pick that uh, IOU up and throw it in the bin. Well, I suggested we've got the ability to do a couple of things. We've got the ability to just say, well, we're going to be cancelling the debt. We owe you. We could say, well, see that port of Darwin over there that you leased for 99 years? Actually, that's null and void now. We're taking it back because you owe us money. We could look at some of the farms and the agribusiness. Now, uh, yes, it's on the edge, but it's legitimate commentary. For that, I saw in the, uh, uh, the South China uh, Morning Post a story today, and that's controlled by Alibaba, and the head of Alibaba is a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, I saw something in that paper today saying, um, because I said that, uh, that we should, uh, that China should stop buying Australian stuff. I mean, again, these sort of, these tactics, which are not the tactics and not the commentary you'd expect from a friendly partner, it's the commentary you'd expect from someone who's more of a foe. So, you know, I just wonder, what are their true aims here? Do they want us to be subservient to them all of the time? Well, well, George, uh, it's, um, it's great that we live in a country that people can make these different contributions and, and discuss these issues, frankly. Uh, I have thought um, uh, in the last few days about, well, if our ambassador had turned up to a press conference in China, maybe being held where the Chinese health minister was providing some information and our ambassador got up and started to regale how great Australia was and how well we were tackling the coronavirus, et cetera, and he did so without an invitation, you know, what would happen <laughs> to the person that had, had brought him along in China? And, and um, while I disagree vehemently with um, Twiggy Forrest, and we might get to the details of that, uh, he's 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 welcome to have his view and perspective, and I respect that. And it's great that we live in a country that allows that free-flowing discussion of uh, ideas. Uh, you're right to say and point out, though, that uh, the 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 threats that China implicitly and explicitly makes uh, from time to time are of grave concern. Uh, uh, and this is not an isolated case, and it hasn't just happened since the coronavirus. Uh, Around around 12 years ago now, China yeah. and Japan entered a little bit of a dispute uh, mm -hmm. over islands and territorial boundaries, uh, culpability for for uh, for war crimes in, in World War Two. And uh, at one point, the the threat was made to Japan that, well, you know, we won't if you if you continue down this path, we're not going to supply you rare earths anymore. And rare earths are incredibly important. Uh, material in, in most modern technologies, phones, anything modern and advanced has some degree of yeah. They go into magnets largely. Yep. And uh, uh, so that worried the Japanese, obviously, China. They relied on China completely for their supply. That actually caused the Japanese government to develop their own supply chain for rare earths, which involves an Australian company, Linus. Uh, the, yep. the material comes from Western Australia. And it's the only, Linus now is really the only other way to produce and and supply rare earths uh, to the world, in the world. 
um, thanks to that Japanese reaction. So th this has obviously been a considered tactic. It's not a rogue ambassador here in Australia uh, who's, who's sort of off the leash. They have a considered tactic mm. of trying to use that, that the economic links they have with other country to pressure uh, certain outcomes. Now, I think it's absolutely unacceptable. And, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm very thankful that we've had governments in this country that have made that clear. And uh, while you and I have huge disagreements with Malcolm Turnbull over many things, Malcolm was very strong on this and has been in the last uh, few days. Uh, Kevin Rudd was strong on this. Uh, Tony Abbott was strong on this. Um, Scott Morrison is strong on this, that we must stand up for our own sovereignty. And, mm -hmm. and while we can trade with other countries and happy to do so, that has to be on commercial terms. Part of the deal, you know, part of, you know, you, our business people go and negotiate a trade outcome and they, they negotiate a price on iron ore and coal and other mm -hmm. products. Yeah, on that table, in that negotiation, is not our positions on certain issues on foreign affairs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. On that yeah. table are commercial matters of quality and specs of, of a product, uh, risk and price, insurance. Uh, uh, what, what is not on the table and should never be on the table is the independence and sovereignty of our own nation. Uh, um, but, that, but, but I think some business leaders struggle to, to understand that there should be a separation oh. between the the commercial negotiation table and the, and the diplomatic and country-to-country -country positions I mean, and issues. You can understand their position. They're just thinking about their pockets. I mean, quite honestly, um, it, it's it's wrong-headed thinking. I mean, they're, they're um, basically selling out their their country for the for the profit motive, which I think is, is, is shocking. But uh, anyway, that's that's what they do, and you can understand that. You're listening to Conservative Wine. I want to take you really into the deep end here. Um, have you read the book by Professor Clive Hamilton, who's a massive lefty, uh, called Silent Invasion? Uh, oh, I haven't read the book. Sorry, George, I do okay. know of it. And yeah. um, it's interesting that there are some interesting alliances on this issue, though, that come together across the political spectrum. So in that book, Professor Hamilton point something out which which you know was an eye-opener for me uh, i went and checked it out indeed all of the stuff that he said was right whether he's joined the dots correctly i'm not sure but what he points out is this that xi jinping when he came to canberra and gave an address to parliament house to our to our legislature to the government he made the claim that china was the first country to discover australia and map Australia. Now, I remember sitting there listening to that speech, as getting the translation through the headset. I remember hearing words to that effect. I didn't think much of it, you know, just the sort of normal commentary that some leader makes about, you know, the relationship, the historical relationship between their country and our country, half of the course, until what was pointed out in that book, Silent Invasion by Professor Hamilton, that that is a very significant thing that in chinese law spells out a sense of ownership whoever discovered the country first and whoever mapped the country first owns the country these are the same claims that are put forward regarding the south china sea so i i really do wonder about china's end game here what they actually really think about the Australian continent. 
you could say that's delving into conspiracy theory, not my conspiracy is it, theory. Is it true? Is it, uh, I mean, it, there's, there's it's a, absolutely it's, true. That, that, All that, of those that, points that, are absolutely that, true. That, that, uh, that China discovered and mapped Australia before Cook. I, I presume that was sort of Zheng Hei or whatever his name was, the, yeah, uh, yeah. the explorer, that China, the famous Chinese explorer. Did, was that, is, that, is that what happened? I, I, I'm not sure of the truth of that, but that's what was posited by the... Uh, yeah, well, it doesn't matter. Obviously, it's it's uh, it's something. It's a it's a fact that uh, the Chinese Communist Party ad- adhere to, and and it might very well possibly be true. Obviously, what happened um, after those great Chinese exploration journeys, uh, I think, in the fifteenth century, around that time, they they were leading the world in, in mapping the world and discovering the world far far ahead of Europeans and Columbus, etc. And uh, and they pulled up. They for for whatever reason decided they didn't want to fund and and uh, be committed to a worldwide exploration endeavour. And I think they, they burnt all the boats. And uh, this, this famous explorer, was, his career was ended, basically. And that's, that's sort of, I suppose, been the, the position of, of China ever since. And, and I suppose it's often repeated that China is not an imperialistic power. It's got so much on its plate in its own country and its own stability and unity. Has uh, has fractured over many years, and that's what they, uh, I, that they don't do that. But I do, I do, I do think. I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think how could you say it's not imperialist when it has its claims as it has over Taiwan? It has its claims as it has over Tibet. So, um, so that's a distinction between its own region, what it considers China. Um, it's not imperialist in the sense that it wants to. Or hasn't. I mean, historically, that's just a fact. It hasn't historically sought to acquire territory that it doesn't think is part of its own country, um, such as China. And I'd say same thing. The United States is not an imperialistic power in the way that, uh, say, say uh, the Mongols or uh, British Empire at times uh, were. But but what I would say is that it's an open question. I think about what are the the the, the goals of this um, Chinese administration. So it's not the past doesn't matter so much yeah. to us. Uh, what are the goals and objectives of this administration? Now, I don't know the answer to that question. And uh, like certainly things in a communist country, it's clouded. But but clearly the, this administration of Xi Jinping is very different from the communist regimes we've seen since Deng Xiaoping. We're um, seeing a, a great that's, that's something we must respond to. Economic imperialism, particularly throughout the uh, the Pacific, that's for sure. And that that worries, it's got to worry us as a nation, you know, the establishment of a beachhead on many different countries, whether it be countries like Fiji or the Solomon Islands or uh, East Timor right on our doorstep. It's it's a scary prospect if you're talking about establishing military bases in those countries that China would run. Well, absolutely. I mean, we've seen uh, China uh, um, militarise the, the South China Sea, and, well, that's a fair way from our own country. That example is... Is, is concerning, and, and that's why we've expressed concerns uh, in regards to it. Uh, it's a it's a reality that's there that we must um, be very careful about, uh, and it's one of the reasons why we shouldn't, even in small ways, seek to trade off our independence and and uh, our, our 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 own freedom on the world stage because. As soon as you do that, you, I mean, you're you're right to I think use the word I think bullying before, and another I suppose I'd almost characterise as blackmail at times. What is what is there, and what is happening at times from from Chinese ambassadors around the world and what have you. Mm. As soon as you you know accept a a, a blackmail proposition, you know you say okay, look, we all all Twiggy's putting on the tables. We should defer the inquiry. 
that we're seeking into the coronavirus till after the US presidential election. That's that's Twiggy's formal position that he's put in the past uh, few few weeks. I defer that inquiry to, to appease the Chinese. Now, at one level, okay, that's not a big thing. It's only a few months if that's what they want. But as soon as you do that, you know, if you're doing it explicitly after a threat's been made, what's going to happen the next time? There'll yeah. be another threat made, and it might be under some, something much, much more substantive. And by that time, you might be your economy might be even more deeply integrated, and and the cost of saying no to to the threat is is even greater. So I think we have an obligation here to to our to future generations of Australia that we do not continue to put our country in a position where we have such a terrible choice between our economic prosperity and and our and our, and our yeah. freedom, independence as a nation. I don't think we're quite there yet. I, I mean, I think. Um, it's it's been usefully highlighted over the past few weeks. But what I pick up from average Australians, uh, from our, our uh, the vast majority of our colleagues on both sides of politics, is that is a trade we are not willing to enter into. There's a great yeah. consistency on this across our country. So we should take pride in that and some hope in that. There's a great degree of, 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 of absolute mm. determination not to give in and, and outsource that. Keep in mind, you know, we've only had our independence as a country for a very short time. We didn't have an independent foreign policy really before World War II. Um, so we fought hard to achieve that and we should cherish that and protect that and not sell us, sell it out. It was some commentary, uh, by the by, some commentary from, uh, from Labor's shadow trade minister, which I thought was unhelpful, attacking Andrew Hastie, who is a, a, a very um, big... Uh, outspoken opponent of, of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, suggesting that he was driving foreign policy at the moment um, and that it was having some negative impact. Uh, I, I just thought that that was very poorly timed. Uh, Absolutely. And, and look, oh, I mean, uh, although I would say uh, there's a diversity of views, I think the, the Labor Party, at least in recent times, has been more susceptible to deferring to China on these issues. And we've seen high-profile examples of that with the former Senate colleague of mine, Sam Bestiari, uh, Bob Carr at certain times. But you know, I must be oh, fair and recognise some strong people in the Labor Party as well, like Stephen Conroy. Uh, I think Penny Wong has got the right attitude on this too. So I, 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 as I say, I, yeah. I'm determined and optimistic about the position of this country, um, despite the fact yeah. that obviously there's a different view sometimes. Right, um, I also would, I want to be, clear on our side of politics too we've got to be very clear that we've got to be very careful that it is perhaps our side of politics that can be more likely to fall into the trap of well the jobs and the economic opportunity are really important right and because that's something we normally support and and are, and are very attuned to want to uh fight to 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 develop our country and, yeah. and create economic opportunity and and so that's the that's the bauble that's the that's the carrot that's being dangled in front of us and so it's tempting i think for or some on the conservative side of politics to snatch at. But we've just got to be very careful that, that the reason, in my view, that on our side of politics we are, our default position is to support economic opportunity, support economic growth, is it's a means to an end. The, mm. the making of the money, the, 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 the creating of prosperity, in and of itself is not the good. The good is that it give, then gives us the freedom and flexibility to decide our own course. If you're a mm -hmm. prosperous nation, you have more choices. Uh, if you're not a dependent state, you can decide your own course and 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 path. And that's what 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 we cherish: that freedom uh, from control and coercion. So as long as we keep our eye on that's the objective, that's the goal. I, I'm confident we'll make the right decision. 
Islamophobia hasn't killed anyone. Uh, Islamist terrorism has now killed tens of thousands of people. Conservative wine. Well, even if you're worried about the dollars and you're worried about the jobs, I mean, uh, having them all placed in a very precarious basket has got to concern you. And that's um, probably delving into another area. But I want to go to your time as Resources Minister. There was speculation at one point in time that due to uh, statements that the government was making that China uh, shut down coal exports to, uh, or coal imports rather, into China from Australia uh, at one of its ports. What was the truth behind that? Did they do that or was it something else going on? Well, as I said before, it's extremely hard to establish uh, um, the true facts. You know, communists tend to be pretty good at, at speaking through a forked tongue and it's hard sometimes mm. to establish what's going on. I'd also say about China itself, and I've travelled to China, and, uh, but that China's very different, very diverse. It's a huge country. And, mm. and, and so there is no doubt that uh, Australian exports of coal were stopped to help and benefit China from time to time. Now, notionally, the, the feedback whenever we, something would be given would be, oh, the specifications aren't met, there's been a, a breach of, 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 of loading documents, um, uh, spurious kind of claims. But, but clearly, we, clearly there was an objective uh, to protect, yeah. at the very least protect Chinese coal production. Keep in mind, China's the world's largest coal producer. They produce half of the world coal. They have about two to three million Chinese working in their coal industry. Uh, you know, we're, we're out there fighting for the, the, the 50,000 jobs in coal in Australia. They've got two to three million. So you can imagine the politicians in China, uh, what they're doing from time to time. So there's a protectionist element to this. They, some want to keep Australian coal out so that they can support jobs in their own communities. But there, there was also at time to time, it, it did seem to uh, overlap with, with um, tensions in the relationship. Look, it was very hard to establish because I never got to China as a minister. Uh, mm. I was a minister for almost four years tried it multiple times but uh, was never given permission to, to travel, um, never given a visa. Uh, we, were, we were frozen out to some degree. And, and, and look, yep. uh, that, was, that, was, that is clearly a response to some of the tough decisions we made over issues like Huawei. Uh, absolutely, and clearly, and in, in, this is where you know, I think the business leaders and, and the likes of Twiggy have really misread things. The decisions we made on Huawei, they were criticised at the time um, including by by business Australian business community, and there was a lot of concern. But time has proven the absolute correctness of that position. Absolutely, yeah, yes. uh, we were, and it's easy to forget now. We were the first country in the world to take that stance mm -hmm. so, uh, before the United States, uh, and and that did obviously um, piss off the Chinese, no doubt about it. But it was the right call, and. Uh, since we made that call, country after country have joined us in the, in the same stance and position. And I, I think the United Kingdom will, will do the same eventually. Perhaps this pandemic has been the the, the push, that the shove that, that has wake up been call. needed, the wake-up call, it's a good way of putting it. Uh, but I, I, from everything I hear, I think they might reflect on that decision. Hopefully they do because they're part of the five eyes. And, and uh, you know, I think as Ted Cruz said the other day, you know, um, he, he, the US could live with four eyes, but they're not going to live with six eyes. Yeah, <laughs> very good point. So, again, in your time as Resources Minister, you would have been across the um, uh, the use. You mentioned uh, rare earths before. You would have been across all of the different minerals and the deposits that we've got here in the country and what uh, the strategic need was for us uh, 
from some of those mineral deposits. I guess that we might rely on China and other countries for some of our strategic minerals that we use. What's the sort of uh, state of play you see there? Should we be doing anything more than what we're currently doing at the moment in terms of our mineral exploration and uh, exploitation? Uh, should we be doing anything more in terms of the processing of those minerals uh, that we currently sort of export to other countries like China? Well, absolutely we should, and we are. We are. Um, so in my time as a, as the Resources Minister, it was one of the central things I was focused on. We have established a, what we've called a Critical Minerals Facilitation Office in Australia to help uh, bring investment in not just rare earths, but a range of metals and minerals critical to the modern economy to Australia, but also to be part of a broader supply chain. This is not just about our country. Yeah, the Most of the use of these types of minerals in actual finished products are uh, are in third-party countries in other countries, but we are an important part of the supply chain. Uh, we have outside of China the, the, the highest production of rare earths. Just to maybe we'll dwell, delve into rare earths the most because it's it's probably the most interesting and certainly the market dominated the, the most by China. Uh, they're not actually that rare. They're uh, they're all over the place. They are rarely concentrated in a form that makes them uh, commercial to mine. One of the places where, which is commercial, is not far from Kalgoorlie in, in Western Australia, where the, the largest rare earths mine outside of China exists. It was the mine supported, as I mentioned before, by the Japanese government. And without the support of the Japanese government, there is no way that mine would be continuing today. Uh, Chinese suppliers have clearly sought to strategically interfere in the, in the global rare earths market to, to try and crush competition. Now, you know, that's just what all monopolists try to do uh, from time to time, but we don't want to see a distorted and non-commercial market in such a critical commodity, and that's why I think there is a role for government to support the establishment of, of alternative supplies of this material to, to the world. Keep in mind, as I said before, that, that rare earths are essential input into to the joint strike fighter, apparently about 400 kilos of it required in, in a joint strike fighter, uh, as into aircraft carriers, all modern equipment that, that requires uh, the use of magnets, your mobile phone. So a lot of people will probably be listening to this on a mobile phone. About 10 or 20 grams of rare earths are in your mobile phone. In fact, the very thing you're listening to at the moment, the reason it doesn't sound, hopefully it doesn't sound too tinny, uh, the, the way they can do that in very small speakers is by using a rare earth called neodymium, which we do produce at that at that mine in Western Australia. So they're absolutely essential and critical. Very small market too. It's fascinating. It's only about a billion dollars globally. You know, to put that in context, we export around $60 billion of coal a year and the global market for rare earths is about a billion dollars. It's another reason you need that government support because, you know, the likes of BHP don't get up out of bed for a, for a billion dollar market globally um, to get these mines off the ground. You need some, some real nurturing and support. So we've done that and we've had some success uh, in the last few weeks uh, that Australian company, Linus, has been pre-selected by the Department of Defence in the US to build a uh, heavy rare earth separation facility in Texas, uh, and that will link with their production and supply. It will help expand production in Australia of the raw material and provide an end-to-end -end solution uh, for the uh, the US Defence Department uh, for this type of rare earth. So it's very, yeah. very important. We talked about government support there. Uh, you mentioned manufacturing earlier and how China's sort of uh, beefed up its manufacturing capability, I said, perhaps to our detriment. Um, if we wanted to re-establish manufacturing and get manufacturing jobs back, 
particularly in the regions. They're the kind of jobs that we need in the regions. Uh, what have we got to do? Uh, well, number one, uh, we've got to get our energy prices down. Uh, uh, I perhaps won't segue too much to that because we will have to do a whole other podcast on that, I'd say. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, we're, we're, our energy prices are triple what they are in the US, double what they are in Canada. Well, 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 let me and we just can't specific. compete at that level. So, But, but, but what we need to do on the global front, yes, on the trade right. issues that we're talking about today, I think is cooperate with other nations' governments to establish markets. I, I think the template of what we achieved, and the, and the Australian government led the, the, led the world on the rare earths issue, it was actually quite hard getting the US administration into gear on it um, because, as I say, it's such a small market. It's you know, a billion dollars. Very hard to get the likes of General Electric uh, and Apple and, and others really keen on the issue because it's such it's a rounding error in their bottom line. So so it's not they're not their, their procurement people are not focused on it. But we pushed hard on that, and and I think the the growing concern about China's commercial behaviour uh, or diplomatic slash commercial behaviour. Uh, helped helped us uh, get that over the line, um, but the same the same issues exist in other markets, not to the same degree. Um, but but take the concern that the likes of Twiggy has, and we should put on we should put on record, George, that that we're both talking. I'm here in in Yapoon at my home, and, and you're up in in Mackay. We're in we're in the middle. We're you know in, just west of us is the is the coking coal that we yep. supply to China. So the, 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 this, we do have skin in the game here. We're not saying, oh, well, let's let's not worry about the Chinese trade because it's only going to affect Western Australia. That's not going to happen. It's going to potentially be a big issue for us here in, in Queensland as well. But mm-hmm. but the issue, the, the the exposure we've got uh, on the world market here is the steel, is the steel industry. We supply red rocks from Western Australia, black rocks from our area in Queensland, the best in the world of both those commodities. We're the best producer, most efficient producer of both of those. And we supply those uh, to the Asian region for steel to be produced. And China now has has more than 50% of steel production in the world. In fact, you look, it's remarkable. China produces about 900 million tonnes of steel a year. The next biggest country, the next biggest country in terms of steel production is now India, just overtook Japan the past year. And its its production is 105 million tons per annum. So so China's at 900, and India is the next biggest at, at 105. Japan's about 100. The US is 85. And so we we you know we, what we've got to do, I think, is just like rare earths. It would be healthier for the world to have a more uh, uh, diversified production of such an essential commodity as steel is. Uh, that would pro- just just promote uh, better commercial outcomes, more competition. But also just just more peace and prosperity because no country would have the ability to say, look, you know, we've got all the steel and this is what we want you to do. Uh, so we should be encouraging the opening up of markets in India, in Japan, in the US, Korea, uh, and in Europe too, um, to, to supply them with our high-quality uh, iron ore and coal and, and diversify the world's steel industry. It'll be not the first time we've looked to do that as a globe either. This is not that radical. The same issues arose when Japan's steel industry grew significantly in the post-war period uh, and agreements were made on the world stage uh, to diversify production at that stage. And I think we need to think about that again in the post-pandemic world. Well, look, we've gone for probably close to 40 minutes. And so we could talk for a lot longer about so many more issues. uh, But I'm going to wrap it up here uh, with a key question I ask um, just about everyone. Uh, although I'll put a different spin on it, Matt, so it doesn't look like you're wanting to usurp anyone at the moment. It's uh, 10 years down the track. Uh, 
Uh, you run for a lower house seat. Uh, you're the deputy prime minister, the Liberal Party uh, leader, the prime minister of the day, resigns from some scandal. You're prime minister for a day as the deputy prime minister and national party leader. What is the one thing you do as prime minister for the day? The one thing I, I would do would be to, to cut personal income tax in Australia. I mean, there's a range of things I do, but I'm trying to think about the one thing that would have the greatest and biggest impact. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got very high marginal tax rates. Obviously, our our fiscal position is going to be more constrained uh, post this crisis, given the support and assistance government has had to provide. But uh, our ability to recover, our ability to deal with that extra debt is going to be determined by economic growth and prosperity and enterprise of the Australian people. And our, our our high personal income tax rates, I think, and it's something absent of the discussion too. When we when the discussion has turned to tax in the last um, few years, the 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 focus has been on corporate tax, mm. and I I I think that's been a well, it's been a political dead end, obviously, because we didn't get through the Senate. But I also think it's an economic a red herring. Um, we've got a fully franked corporate tax system, so let's be clear: when we cut corporate taxes. If you're an Australian investor, an Australian shareholder, you don't benefit at all. There's no change in the tax rate you ultimately pay because uh, uh, you might, you're just your company, you won't pay less tax. But when they pay dividends, the 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 extra tax you pay, which is the difference between your personal income tax cut tax rate and the company tax rate, is increased. And and so you get hit on that side. Uh, the beneficiaries of a corporate tax cut are overseas investors. And while that can be important to start to to promote economic growth, I think the much bigger issue is promoting enterprise. Of the Australian people, so we're going to have to have that discussion. It always gets, as you, as you know, it always gets wrapped up about, oh well, you have a tax cut to people on high incomes. You know, you've got to do something at the other end of the income stream. But but we need, we're going to need to grow the pie. We're going to need to unlock, and we're going to have to grow. We're going to have to, in my view, we could do a whole more podcast on this, but you're going to have to have Australian-led growth. The growth that we're going to get in the next ten or twenty years, in my view, is not going to be as globally driven as yeah. it has been in the last ten or twenty years. And, and and that's out of our control. Whatever we do, I think that's happening around the world. The world is moving away from the same global integration that it had. So we need more growth generated by Australians. Domestically, um, yep. And, and, and having a competitive tax system for Australian investors will be a key part of that. Indeed. We might come back and have that discussion on another day. But uh, for now, thank you very much, Matt Canavan, Senator Matt Canavan, for joining us for Conservative One. Thanks, George. Who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come? We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You've been listening to the Conservative One podcast with George Christensen.